Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. Today, I'm bringing you another serial killer, just like I did the last couple weeks. But this guy is one of the lesser known serial killers. I mean, he's barely a serial killer, if I'm being honest because he had two versus three victims that we know of, but he was definitely on his way. That being said, this guy, just like last week's case, was a currently serving military member. And with that, let's talk about a man known in Texas simply as the suitcase killer. Now, let's dig in. My sources for this episode include a few true crime television series, including Buried Truths, See No Evil, On the Case with Paula Zahn, Forensic Files, and Solved. We also relied on news sources, ABC 13, Texas News, and Law and Crime. I also referenced two court opinions, one from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and the other decided in 2011 at the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals level. Trigger warning for this case, it does involve murder, of course, because it's called military murder, but it also involves rape. So everybody, if this is something that triggers you, please skip this episode. On Tuesday, September 13th, 2005, in Lubbock, Texas, a landfill worker called a spotter was screening a load of trash for hazardous materials when he noticed a suitcase in a load of debris that had been dropped for him to check. The suitcase was definitely out of place for some reason. I don't know, something about it. It looked like it was in pretty decent condition to have been thrown away. Well, this piqued the spotter's curiosity. So he went over to it and opened the zipper. As the zipper opened, he made a startling discovery. He could see a set of toes curled up inside. He tried to decide if it was a mannequin or a person, but he knew this was a human body. He immediately called his supervisor over and they called 911. Inside the suitcase, the body of a badly beaten, completely nude young woman was curled in the fetal position. Her knees were to her chest and her head was tilted down with her chin touching her chest and her head was turned slightly up. No identification was found in the suitcase with the body, but the woman had red hair and a tattoo of the word, or possibly a name, Summer on her left ankle. The woman in the suitcase had been dead for less than 48 hours, according to the medical examiner. Horrifically, the Emmy concluded that the victim was still alive when she was placed in the suitcase. Her cause of death was determined to be blunt force trauma and asphyxiation. The medical examiner said that Summer's body was covered with between 50 and 70 clusters of bruises, scrapes, and other obvious injuries that she had endured, including sexual assault. Another heartbreaking discovery was made by the ME. The woman was approximately two and a half months pregnant with a baby boy. In Texas, because the baby died with its mother, the murder can be reclassified as a double homicide. 
At this point, authorities needed to identify the victim. So the identifying factor that she had on her person was that tattoo of the word summer. They ran the description of the tattoo through a database. And with the help of that information and confirmation with fingerprint testing, authorities determined that the body was that of 29-year-old Summer Baldwin. Summer Baldwin was a young mother of four and she had had a run-in or two with the law, which is why the identifying tattoo was on record. Lubbock police made the heartbreaking notification to her mom, Uva Robach, who was nearly 2,000 miles away in Washington state. Uva and Summer talked on the phone weekly, and Uva hadn't even missed a call from Summer yet. She didn't know where her daughter was missing until the police called her to tell her that Summer had been murdered. Summer's mom described her as a bright and bubbly child, and she felt that the name Summer fit her perfectly. Summer had long auburn hair and she was very good-natured. Like summertime, said her mom. Summer was born in Tacoma, Washington, but grew up in Roswell, New Mexico, eventually going to cosmetology school. She settled in Lubbock, Texas to be near her Aunt Terry and she wanted to start her career. Her Aunt Terry loved her like she was her own child and she said that Summer was someone who was willing to help you no matter what. Summer was a very caring and friendly person who was described as a true friend. Her friends said that she was a type of individual who would sit and talk with you all day long and was enjoyable to be around. Well, when Summer was murdered, it was noted that she was a witness in a federal counterfeiting case. So the FBI was involved in this homicide investigation from the jump. Lubbock, Texas is a city of about a quarter of a million people and they average about 14 to 15 murders a year. They had never had one where the body was stuffed in a suitcase and found in the city landfill. This murder shocked the community, to say the least. It was going to be extremely hard to find evidence in this case because Summer was discovered in a landfill that's filled with garbage. Try to imagine sifting through tons of trash to find clues. It seems nearly impossible. Investigators found out that the landfill was actually incredibly organized and they were able to interview different truck drivers that had dropped loads off in the area of the dump where the suitcase was discovered. One of the drivers thought he might have remembered exactly where the suitcase came from, a dumpster in an alley behind some houses. When police raced over there to look for clues, they noticed a home security camera mounted in the back of one of the houses, and they asked the homeowner if they could see the footage. Unfortunately, though, the camera angle didn't show the dumpster, and all they could see was a neighbor hanging her laundry on the day that Summer was killed. Police also discovered that Summer had been seeing a guy named LaQuincy Freeman and that he was possibly the father of her unborn baby. Summer's best friend, Margie Estrada, told investigators that LaQuincy had quite a violent temper and had been known to get physical with Summer on occasion. When they brought him in for questioning, LaQuincy told them that he and Summer had broken up and was able to give verifiable alibis for the period of time when Summer was killed. And on top of that, he passed a polygraph with no signs of deception. The camera and the ex-boyfriend both turned out to be dead ends. But Margie gave police a small lead. She told them that she remembers that she ran into Summer late on Sunday, September 11th at the 7-Eleven. Summer was in a red pickup truck, and she was with a clean-cut, light-skinned Latino. Margie described him as having a military-style haircut. Authorities didn't have anything else to go on with that information, so they took Margie's statement and filed it with the investigation. 
To them, the suitcase was their biggest piece of evidence. Unfortunately, there was no usable fingerprints on it. The suitcase looked pretty beat up and was filthy on the outside. But as they were examining it, they noticed something hanging on the bag's handle. It was one of those little plastic loops that price tags are attached to merchandise with. So they wondered if maybe the suitcase had recently been purchased. So inside the suitcase was some brown paper bag, the type you find in new suitcases, the stuff that helps the bag keep its shape. In addition to the plastic piece on the outside, this random stuffing paper on the inside, the police noticed there was a manufacturer's tag with a barcode attached on the inside of the suitcase. The bag's brand name was Protégé. One of the cops had a cousin who just so happened to sell luggage. So the officer asked his cousin about the brand, Protégé. He was able to find out that the brand was only sold in Walmart stores. The detective beeline to Walmart found an identical suitcase with an identical barcode on it. At Walmart, he also found a helpful employee that saw the barcode and was like, hey, Walmart's point of sale system could give you a list of all sales that were made of that item. Well, when they searched it, the record showed that two of the protege suitcases had been sold during the time that Summer was last seen. They pulled up the sales information for this suitcase and saw that one of the sales was made in the afternoon at about 4 p.m. It says between 3 and 4 p.m. When they checked the video surveillance footage, they determined the person buying the suitcase was, I don't know, a middle-aged white woman who just looked like she was going on vacation. The other suitcase, however, was purchased at 3.30 in the morning on the morning that Summer was killed. When detectives asked to see surveillance footage, they saw that the person who purchased the suitcase was a Latino man wearing a bright green polo shirt. And when he left the store, he put the suitcase in a red pickup truck. The Walmart point of sale system is pretty spot on. Not only could they pull up when and where something was purchased, but they could also tell you what other items were purchased with that item. And in this case, the buyer also purchased latex gloves. What in the world? First of all, who goes to Walmart at three o'clock in the morning, buys a suitcase and latex gloves? But listen, y'all, not just that. The person who bought the items also used his debit card. I can't even make this stuff up. So police obtained a federal subpoena to get the information of the cardholder. The name on the card was Rosendo Rodriguez. He was a 25-year-old Lance Corporal in the U.S. Marine Corps Reserve. And the police learned that he was actually in Lubbock that weekend for some military training. Police also identified him in that distinctive green and white striped shirt on surveillance footage from the parking lot, putting the suitcase into a red pickup truck and driving away with it. So they pulled the debit card transactions and discovered that the card was used to rent a red pickup truck. While red pickup trucks are a dime a dozen in good old Texas, this guy was looking more and more like a good suspect. Summer had been seen with a man in a red pickup truck at 7-11 earlier that night before he bought the suitcase and latex gloves. He also spent $18 using the debit card at a 7-11 the same day Summer disappeared. Well, across the street from the 7-11 was a hotel. Authorities paid this hotel a visit. They showed them a picture of Rosendo and a front desk attendant recognized a picture. They said that guy rented a room here. She remembered that he rented the room 
but he rented the room under a different name, albeit it's a similar name. He booked the room under the name Thomas Rodriguez. Remember, his name is Rosendo Rodriguez. This particular hotel used the electronic credit card style room keys. And with this room key, every time someone unlocks their room, it's logged. So the police pull the audit log for the room registered to Rodriguez. And the records pulled from the Holiday Inn showed that Rodriguez entered the room at 1 a.m., which coincided with the time that Summer was seen at 7-Eleven. He also keyed in again at 3.46 a.m., which was about 15 minutes after he purchased the suitcase. According to Lubbock police, during the investigation, they discovered that Rodriguez shouldn't have even been staying in that Holiday Inn. You see, he was there on orders. His entire unit was staying on the south side of town in a different Holiday Inn. It led the police to believe that Rosendo had planned to do something nefarious during his stay in Lubbock, which is why he chose a completely different Holiday Inn. By the time that all this evidence is coming together, Rosendo has already checked out of his room and the room has already been cleaned and checked out to another guest. But when detectives enter the room, there was still plenty of clues left behind. There was blood on the carpet. There was blood on the bed sheet that soaked through to the mattress. And there was blood on the box spring. The blood spatter indicated that Summer had been bludgeoned while on the bed. The blood spatter in this case was considered low-velocity cast-off. Now, low-velocity cast-off is going to be in a bigger pattern than what's found with high-velocity cast-off. This tended to show investigators that the blood spatter was consistent with being beaten with hands. In addition to all of this evidence, down the hall from Rosendo's room, there was a trash can. Inside the trash can, the police found a plastic bag from the Holiday Inn. Inside that bag was a Walmart bag. Inside the Walmart bag was those used latex gloves and the Walmart receipt for those latex gloves and the suitcase. When authorities went to search for Rosendo, he was no longer in Lubbock, but police were able to track him to a Greyhound bus station where he loaded and was heading towards San Antonio. According to reports, he had texted a selfie to one of his girlfriends saying, quote, I miss you and love you tons, end quote. In the picture that he took, he was wearing the same green and white striped polo shirt that he wore to Walmart a few days earlier. Police tracked Rosendo down to his parents' house in San Antonio, approximately 400 miles from Lubbock. When police initially looked at Rosendo Rodriguez, they looked at him and they didn't feel as though he was a likely suspect. He had been to college, he was in the military, and he had no criminal record. The Texas Rangers provided surveillance of the house, however, for Lubbock, while they were getting together a probable cause affidavit and getting an arrest warrant. Once the arrest warrant was issued, the Rangers, who were waiting outside his house, swooped in when he stepped outside. They handcuffed Rosendo and stuffed him into the back seat of a police car. Rosendo didn't resist arrest. He just calmly followed the Rangers' orders. Lubbock police arrived shortly after and took custody of Rosendo and returned him to Lubbock. The funny thing, Rosendo never asked why they were arresting him. I mean, if you were being picked up by police, wouldn't you want to know why they were slapping cuffs on you? Three days after Summer's murder, Rosendo Rodriguez was charged with two counts of murder, one for Summer Baldwin and one for her unborn baby. 
and with the charges, Rosendo refused to speak to police without his attorney present. Coincidentally, Rosendo's father was a well-known criminal defense attorney in Wichita Falls. He had been practicing law for over 30 years. So who is Rosendo Rodriguez? Well, we don't know a whole lot, except that his dad was a high-powered defense attorney. Rosendo had two sisters and had a family history of bipolar disorder, tyrannical behavior, alcoholism, and pain medication abuse, which I believe many of these are traits used to describe his father. But after requesting an attorney, Rosendo didn't stay quiet forever because about a month after his arrest, Rosendo was ready to talk to police. Accompanied by his lawyer, Rodriguez made a statement. In his statement, Rosendo said that it was he who killed Summer, but he claimed it was self-defense. His version of the story was that he finished training for the day and he happened upon Summer walking down the street crying. He asked her if everything was okay and offered to allow her to come to his hotel and clean up. She did, and then he dropped her back off. The following night, they bumped into each other again and he took her back to his room at the Holiday Inn where they engaged in consensual sex. Afterwards, Rosendo started to get agitated when, according to him, Summer lit a crack pipe. After he told her to cut it out, he alleged that Summer took out a pocket knife and came at him when he was near the bathroom. Describing the knife in his own words, he said it was, quote, one of those little yellow fold-out ones, end quote. Rosendo said that his military training immediately kicked in He grabbed Summer's arm that was holding the knife and he pulled it over her throat, telling her to let it go and drop the knife. Then he said he put Summer in a chokehold. He described a grunting sound that Summer made as he was holding her in the chokehold, probably because he was, you know, choking her. After he realized that she had stopped moving, he dropped her to the ground. He checked her pulse and said she wasn't breathing. He also claimed that her nose was bleeding He said it was like gushing blood. When he saw this, he started freaking out and panicking. He whined that his arm was shaking because he had held it rigid for so long around Summer's neck. And in that moment, he decided he needed to cover up Summer's death. He then told authorities that he had kept some of the knives that Summer had on her person. And one of the knives did in fact have Summer's fingerprints on it. But cops didn't believe the whole self-defense story. He didn't have one, not one single defensive wound on his body. And the blood spatter evidence in the room didn't line up with what he claimed happened. The blood spatter was consistent with blunt force trauma, not choking or a nosebleed. His, quote, confession was inconsistent with the evidence. While Lubbock police were questioning Rosendo, another team of investigators were searching his residence for evidence back in San Antonio. One of the first things they noticed was that green and white striped polo shirt. They also seized a computer from his bedroom. And what they found on that computer was a ton of evidence that indicated that Rosendo was very active online trying to meet girls. Something else they found were searches on news sites, specifically searching for the name Summer Baldwin. He even had to register for an account with the Lubbock News to see the news articles. But while authorities are searching Rosendo's search history, authorities found something else that made the hair on the back of their necks stand straight up. Rosendo had been searching news sites for Joanna Rogers, 
a 16-year-old girl who had gone missing in the middle of the night from her house in Lubbock, Texas. This happened 18 months earlier. Joanna Rogers was your typical 16-year-old girl. And by that, I mean she had a boyfriend, she had an after-school job, she lived with her parents, and she had a computer that she was constantly on when she was home. Well, on May 4th, 2004, Joanna got home from work at about one o'clock in the morning from the sandwich shop, which she worked at. After getting home, Joanna spoke to her parents briefly about some inappropriate comments that one of her coworkers was making towards her. They questioned her more about the comments, but Joanna said, it's okay, I want to take care of it. Then she kissed her parents goodnight and went to her room. A few hours later, at about three o'clock in the morning, Joanna's parents heard a door rattle. Joanna's mom described it as the noise that a door makes when another door opens or closes. Joanna's father, Joe Bill, got up to check things out. He did a little look and peek, but seeing nothing out of the ordinary, he returned to sleep. Then, hours later at 7 a.m., the family was up. Joanna had a dental appointment, but she was still nowhere to be seen. So, Kathy, Joanna's mom, went to check on her, and that's when she saw that Joanna was missing. Kathy knew that something was wrong. None of Joanna's clothes were missing. Her keys were there. Her car was there. Her purse was there. Her cell phone was there. I mean, honestly, what teenager doesn't have their cell phone with them? Kathy started calling all of Joanna's closest friends, asking if they knew where she was. But no one had a clue, including Joanna's boyfriend, Marcus Lee. He had seen her the day before, but hadn't heard from her since. So at nine o'clock in the morning, Joanna's parents called the sheriff's office to report her missing. The deputy that answered told Joe and Kathy that she was 16 years old and probably just a runaway. He was sure she'd come home soon. But Kathy knew her daughter. Joanna was a straight-A student, a loving daughter, and a happy teenager. She loved dance, soccer, debate, theater, travel, and was looking forward to going to college. She had started doing dance and gymnastics when she was three years old and was, according to her dad, Joe Bill, she was interested in everything. This was totally out of character for Joanna. But one of the most important things and startling to her parents that was left behind was Joanna's baby blanket. According to her mom, even though Joanna was 16 years old, she still took her baby blanket with her when she went on field trips. The main reason Kathy didn't believe that Joanna ran away was because that baby blanket was still sitting on her bed. Joe Bill told Forensic Files, that he was scared, quote, Joanna just didn't do that. It's totally out of character for her, end quote. On Friday, May 7th, people from their neighborhood and their church got together and started a search. It was then that the sheriff's office decided that it was time to take the family seriously, and they worked together on this missing persons case. Several searches were organized with local organizations donating food, drink, water, ice, and the Red Cross even came out. People were bussed all over up to an eight-mile radius searching for Joanna. Over 500 people showed up to help search for her. But one person who was missing from this search was her boyfriend, Marcus Lee. An Amber Alert was issued. Huge billboards with her pictures went up. There was a phone number. They offered a cash reward for $15,000. It seemed like the whole state of Texas was praying for Joanna's safe return. And the sheriff's office was flooded with calls from citizens who felt that they had information that could help. The tone of the investigation shifted as the days wore on and it went from a missing persons case to feeling more like a homicide investigation. 
the first people that had to be ruled out in her disappearance were those closest to her, her parents. Kathy and Joe Bill were questioned and they even took lie detector tests, which they both passed. They even looked into Joe Bill's business as a private investigator, wondering if there was someone that might have wanted to take revenge on him. And what about the coworker who was harassing her at the sandwich shop? Well, that person was interviewed and they had a solid alibi. Police also looked into Joanna's boyfriend, Marcus Lee. They felt it was odd that he hadn't helped in any of the ground searches for Joanna. They thought he was acting very nonchalant about the entire thing instead of being upset like the rest of the community. And then they offered him a polygraph, which he failed. The examiner determined that he was being deceptive in some of his answers about what he knew and where Joanna was. What authorities could gather from the case was that they believed Joanna left her house of her own free will and then vanished once she left. They found out that Marcus Lee didn't know how to drive. His only way of getting around was on a bicycle and he lived about five miles away from Joanna. And even though his answers on the polygraph were deceptive and he was acting pretty defensive, he had a really good alibi. He had been with his family the entire night. And with further investigation, they thought that maybe Marcus failed the lie detector test because he was just a nervous teenager. And with that, he was cleared as a suspect. Police went through all of Joanna's friends and acquaintances and one by one removed them from the list of suspects until there was no one left on the list. Police started to wonder if maybe Joanna had a secret life that no one knew about. I mean, it was 2004, online chat rooms were kind of fading away, but it was still a thing. The forensic computer examiner decided to look through her computer, and that was when they discovered that Joanna had been chatting with over 100 people during the period that she went missing and before. According to Kathy, Kathy knew what Joanna was doing, but she wasn't computer savvy enough to be interested in what she was actually doing. Of course, all the people that Joanna was communicating with online had screen names and login names, so police didn't actually have the names of the people. They had to get subpoenas to get all of that information about who Joanna had been chatting with. According to the computer forensic expert, most of what she was chatting about was innocent high school stuff. Some of the conversations, however, drifted more into the romantic tone. But there was nothing out of line or really out of character for Joanna. She was an overall good kid. But as police started tracking down some of her online friends, a lot of them turned out to be grown-ass men. Police went out in teams and they worked off of lists of people to talk to. Even with subpoenas and all that gumshoe police work, there were several of her online friends that police weren't able to track down. Eventually, all of their leads dried up. Months went by and Joanna's case went cold until they found her name in the search history on Rosendo Rodriguez's computer. The Lubbock police had contacted nearly everyone on the list that was from Joanna's chats on her computer. But are you ready for this? Rosendo Rodriguez was one of the men on that list that they had never questioned. When they had tried to contact him to interview him months earlier, he was on military orders on a training assignment out of state and wasn't available. Authorities saw that Rosendo was a military man. What were the odds that he'd have anything to do with the disappearance of a 16-year-old girl in Lubbock, Texas? So they basically put his name at the bottom of the list and they never got back to him. (laughs) 
Once Rosendo was arrested for a double murder and his name popped up in a missing persons case in the same town, police realized that Rosendo might not be that unusual of a suspect at all. As investigators dug deeper, they discovered that Rosendo had been in contact with Joanna Rogers on the night she vanished. Joanna had sent Rosendo her address. Joanna's cell phone records didn't have any calls to or from Rodriguez's cell phone, but she had a landline in her room and the sleazeball called that number more than once. Specifically, he called that number at two o'clock in the morning the night she vanished. Trey Payne, a prosecutor with the Lubbock County District Attorney's Office, made the decision to waive the death penalty in Summer's case if Rodriguez told them what had happened to Joanna Rogers. And they offered Rosendo full immunity in Joanna's case. They were just eager to get Joanna's family some closure. I am sure that Joanna's family was also eager to know what happened to their little girl. The prosecutor reached out to Rosendo's lawyer and gave them the information on the deal. Two days later, the defense attorney called the prosecutor's office and told them that Rodriguez was willing to take the deal. They set up an interview at the Lubbock Police Department so that Rosendo Rodriguez could give his chilling confession to police. According to him, on the night that Joanna disappeared, he had called her and she told him to come to her house. He drove there in his SUV and Isuzu Rodeo. They got into an argument while in his car. She told him she was going to tell her parents and started to raise her voice. According to Rosendo, at this point, he lost his temper. Rosendo Rodriguez detailed the horrific crime to police in a taped interview, stating, quote, I lost my temper and I just put my hands around her throat. I choked her, end quote. As he said this, he put his hands together, making a choking motion. The detective asked a clarifying question about if she was facing him, and he said they were facing each other. This means that Rosendo looked into that child's eyes as he killed her. He continued, quote, and after that happens, she became lifeless, end quote. The detective countered, quote, what do you mean as far as lifeless, end quote. Rodriguez gestured his hands towards his throat and answered, quote, she was not, she's not breathing, end quote. He strangled 16-year-old straight-A student Joanna Rogers to death in the back of his SUV. He then drove to his apartment and got a suitcase. Then he stuffed Joanna's body inside of the suitcase, twisting her body into the fetal position. This is all so sickeningly familiar, isn't it? After the interview, Rosenda showed the authorities where he threw the suitcase with Joanna's body inside. This mother put that sweet, innocent 16-year-old's body into a suitcase and dumped it into a dumpster like she was trash. By this point, that suitcase was long gone. It was in the landfill somewhere. Could she be there like Summer was? It was an overwhelming task. The city's landfill was 1,260 acres of trash, roughly the size of three football fields. Can you imagine? That massive amount of space was now their crime scene. Now, here's something you may not have known. Landfills are actually super organized. The landfill manager, in this case, his name was Brian Chapa. Brian Chapa went back and he was able to tell authorities exactly where trash from a specific area in town was located in a landfill. And with that, police got to work. 
police were able to secure $120,000 in state and local funds to search for Joanna's body in the landfill. Hundreds of volunteers searched the specific grid area where they believed Joanna's body had been dumped. But remember, she had been missing for two years at this point. Now they had 250,000 tons of trash to dig through. The grid location they were searching was about a 200-yard square. But according to the manager, she was probably about 45 feet down. One of the detectives that was interviewed for forensic files said the smells were horrendous. I mean, imagine taking a deep sniff of your dumpster, but multiply that by 10,000. And then on top of that, the Texas heat. Her family was overwhelmed that total strangers, hundreds of them, were willing to dig through a quarter of a million tons of garbage trying to find their daughter's body. The search went on for 12 weeks. The family and police, they, they realized they might have to face the possibility that they may never find Joanna's body. The volunteers were in rat and disease infected trash day after day. Eventually, at some point, the $120,000 they had secured had basically dried up. On literally the last day they were searching, which was day 59, months into digging up the Lubbock City landfill, they decided to make a last-ditch effort using four massive front-end loaders. They are big tractors with scoops on the front, and they were using these to scoop up and then shake out the trash, letting it fall to see if the suitcase fell out. And the tactic paid off. Shocked police officers noticed something at around 11 a.m. There was a suitcase that had been uncovered by one of the front-end loaders. Inside the suitcase was the decomposed body of a young girl with red hair. It was a bittersweet moment for detectives. They were happy that they had located the body, but their worst nightmares were confirmed. Dental records were compared to the teeth of the girl in the suitcase, and it was a match for Joanna Rogers. Joanna was dead. Even the toughest cops were brought to tears in this case. Joanna's mom recalled in an interview for the show Gone But Not Forgotten that this was the first time that these investigators had ever seen Joanna. They had been searching for her for two years. She went on to emotionally describe how the cops never left Joanna's side. They stayed with her remains until she could be put to rest. Kathy told Paula Zahn, Quote, the relief was so great when we found her because I knew I wasn't going to have to drive by a big grove of trees and say, oh, maybe I should have looked there, end quote. She went on, quote, or think that maybe there was, maybe there was one poster I should have put up, end quote. She quietly finished saying, quote, the search was over, she was home, and that, that meant more to me than anything, end quote. Now, if that doesn't get you in the feels, I don't know what will. Rosendo Rodriguez was the scum of the earth. And when I tell you what he did next, you're going to quite literally scream at the phone. That deal he made with the prosecutor, the deal that he would confess to Joanna Rogers' murder and they would take the death penalty off the table for Summer Baldwin's murder. If the deal had gone through, Rosendo would have not received the death penalty. But when it came time for him to plead guilty for the crimes against Summer, which, by the way, he led them to the body and then passed a polygraph test. When it came time for him to plead guilty for the crimes against Summer, he and his defense team did a 180 and backed out of the deal. 
What the what? Oh, yes. And it gets worse. Not just did they back out. His poor attorney said that this case was like no other he'd ever worked. In October of 2006, they walked into court expecting to plead guilty. But in some ridiculous circus tomfoolery, Rosendo Rodriguez didn't understand anything people were telling him. Like this guy was straight like, come again now? What did you say? Who am I? Why am I here? Okay, I may be exaggerating a tad bit with those last two, but you get the picture. And since that was the case, that deal about the remove the death penalty, he pleaded guilty. Well, that deal was off. Under Texas law, canceling the deal also invalidated his confession to Joanna's murder, and they would not be able to use any of the evidence they collected after his confession, such as his description of where he put her or the fact that they even found the body at all. Prosecutors were left to make some pretty tough decisions. They had a mountain of evidence against Rosendo Rodriguez for Summer's murder, including Summer's DNA on the latex gloves and her DNA being matched to the blood found in his hotel room. But sadly, there was very little evidence that they could use in a case for Joanna's murder. Assistant Prosecutor Trey Payne told Paulazon that there was, quote, not enough to go forward at a beyond a reasonable doubt standard. We didn't have enough evidence, end quote. So they decided to not prosecute Rosendo for Joanna's murder, and they went after him for Summer and her unborn child's murder. Since Rosendo had revoked the plea deal that he had entered, that meant the death penalty was back on the table. The defense filed for a change of venue, and with the agreement of the prosecutors, they moved the trial about 100 miles north of Lubbock to Randall County in Canyon, Texas. Rosendo's death penalty trial began in March of 2008. Prosecutors in this case did not hold back. Rodriguez had to face his victims' families in the courtroom because even though Joanna's murder wasn't being prosecuted, her family was still at that trial. Summer's mom, Uva Robeck, she was also there, and she burned a hole in Rosendo, never taking her eyes off of him for a second. She said in her interview with On the Case with Paula Zahn, quote, I wanted to see what an evil person looked like, end quote. During the trial, the defense tried to claim that Summer had consensual sex with Rodriguez and then tried to rob him. During his taped confession that they played for the jury, Rodriguez described his fabricated timeline of events, adding in that Summer pulled a knife on him and demanded that he give her his wallet. During the trial, he sat unemotional, like it was no big deal, just another day in the park. He loved being the center of attention with all the cameras on him. Prosecutors presented an overwhelming amount of evidence against him over the course of the five-day trial. He couldn't deny any involvement in Summer Baldwin's death. DNA doesn't lie, Rosendo. It just doesn't lie. Summer's DNA was a match to the blood found in his hotel room at the Holiday Inn. It was also found on the outside of the latex gloves found in the doubled up plastic bags in the trash can in the Holiday Inn. Her DNA was also found on the inside of the gloves mixed in with his DNA. His DNA was also a match to what was taken from Summer's rape kit. Boom, they had him. Multiple women also testified that Rodriguez had raped them, including his high school girlfriend. I do want to go into some of these cases just briefly because many people tend to brush off sexual predators. 
But this guy is the perfect example of a monster that might have been stopped dead in his tracks if his victims weren't afraid to come forward. His first victim was his high school girlfriend that said that while their relationship was at times consensual, he was rough. He failed to stop when she told him to stop and he full on forced himself on her many times. One time he pushed her across a bed, dragged her from the house to his car and attempted to force her into the car. The girl ended up staying with him out of fear of what he would do if she broke up with him. But thankfully, they lost contact after high school. Another victim met Rosendo in college. She was in the sister sorority to his fraternity. One night after a party, he forced himself on her despite her pleas for him to stop. The girl was so drunk, she passed out. And when she woke up, he was still there. And he told her not to tell a soul for fear of getting kicked out of the fraternity. On a separate occasion, he tried to incapacitate her and pull her pants down, but she managed to get away. The same year as his second victim, Rosendo found his third victim as she was pledging for the same sorority. Everything was consensual, albeit secretive at first. But like his high school victim, at times he would force sex on her and he would become very evil and violent. She was also afraid to break up with him. Then there was another sorority pledge who became one of Rosendo's victims. She was waiting until marriage to have sex and Rosendo appeared to be respectful of that request, even going as far as meeting her parents. But then this young lady found out that Rosendo was a two-timing SOB. So she went to his place to confront him. He told her he only had eyes for her and he got her to believe him. But as she got up to leave his apartment, he blocked her exit, then forced himself on her despite her pleas for him to stop. After it was all said and done, the jury left to deliberate and returned in just three short hours. On April 1st, 2008, they found Rosendo guilty of capital murder. Count one was murder in the course of committing aggravated sexual assault. Count two was the murder of two or more persons. Because in Texas, Summer's unborn baby was counted as a life that he ended. Sentencing followed. The judge sentenced Rosendo to death for the murder of Summer Baldwin and the son she carried. Although the verdict and sentence were for them and not Joanna Rogers, both families felt a sense of justice was had from the result of the trial. Kathy Rogers said, quote, I believe justice will be served when he's dead, end quote. She went on to say she still misses the part where she and Joanna would have gone to the theater or dance recitals, and she wanted to share with her daughter all the things they had already shared together. A parent's pain never stops. Summer's mom told Gone But Not Forgotten that, quote, I couldn't have been happier. It was like he got what he really deserves because he did. He deserves the death penalty for what he's done, end quote. Kathy also told the same show, quote, I think they all scored a victory when Rosendo was caught and sentenced to death because it's not just the two young ladies that were killed. It could have been many, many more, end quote. On Tuesday evening, March 27th, 2018, which was the day after Rosendo's 38th birthday, Rosendo was led to the death chamber following a last-ditch appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. They rejected his appeal less than 30 minutes before his scheduled execution. When the warden asked if he had any final words, Rosendo defiantly spoke for seven whole-ass minutes, like anybody cared what he had to say. During that time, he never once apologized to the families of his victims, 
who were there to witness his execution. ABC 13 quoted some of his words, quote, the state may have my body, but they never had my soul, end quote. During his rant, he said, quote, lastly, I want everyone to boycott every single business in the state of Texas until all of the businesses are pressed to stop the death penalty, end quote. But his real last, last words were, quote, I fought the good fight. I have run the good race. Warden, I'm ready to join my father, end quote. Prison officials then injected him with a lethal dose of the sedative pentobarbital. 22 minutes later, Rosendo Rodriguez was dead. Joe Bill, Joanna's dad, said that an apology from Rodriguez, quote, wouldn't have made a bit of difference. He just cared about himself, just a sociopath, end quote. Summer's mom said that Rodriguez, quote, went to his maker and he's got justice now, end quote. Rosendo Rodriguez was described as an intelligent, charismatic person that people were drawn to, but he was also a bold-faced liar. He lied about what happened with Summer and Joanna. He killed both of those young ladies in cold blood just for the sake of killing. And to add insult to injury, here is something that will really make your blood boil. Because, you know, there's like a low, then there's a stolen valor low. Rodriguez told people that he deployed to Iraq and that he had killed multiple times in the line of duty. He claimed to have killed a young girl once and even claimed to have had sex with multiple Iraqi girls. But guess what? He never deployed, ever. His unit confirmed that he never deployed. And in this case, all of the investigators and the prosecutor who tried the case agreed on one thing. They are sure that Rosendo Rodriguez has more victims than just Joanna and Summer. They just haven't been tied to him yet. This is a case that I rarely hear about in, you know, true crime podcast circles, but it is clearly well known by IDTV and Oxygen because there are a ton of TV shows, which I already listed at the top of this show. Shout out to Myrtle for her research and writing assistance on this case. If you want more of me during the week, make sure you follow me on social. I'm on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast and on TikTok at Military Margot with a T at the end. There, I share true crime snippets throughout the week. This episode was researched and written in collaboration with Myrtle. Military Murder was created by Mama Margot Productions and is produced in collaboration with all of my boot camp and higher fan club members. The music was created by Tyops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you another Military Murder story next time. Working on our podcast. I don't want to.